T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and gift mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Happy Father's Day. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, we all had a terrible new reason this past week to contemplate the great divide in our American politics. A lone act of violence against Republican congressmen occasioned a brief pause to some of the angry words. But long term, the partisan rancor shows little sign of abating. The latest chapter in a history Ted Koppel will consider in our cover story. Obstruction of justice. Obstruction Telling of justice. Impeachment. Hours, we keep hearing that I word a lot. The deep state. We've been warning you about the deep state. The media wars are getting nastier by the day, and there are 43 months left to go in a first Trump administration. Pat Buchanan will tell you it's been building for almost 50 years. That sort of really began in earnest in November of 1969, when Nixon, after he gave his famous great silent majority speech, was attacked by the networks immediately. Your reaction to this bombshell report and the... The ongoing battle for hearts and minds, coming up on Sunday morning. 
We're taking time this Father's Day to remember what might have been the mother of all concerts, the pop festival that kicked off the summer of love half a century ago. Anthony Mason takes us back. If you're going... It was the rock festival that gave birth to rock festivals. Fifty years ago this weekend, Monterey Pop brought together Otis, Janice, and Hendrix. Did you sell out every day? Oh, yeah. Everything was full, and then there were people standing along the fences. Later on Sunday morning, remembering Monterey Pop. Daddy's home is the cry in many American households today, unless that is dad's outside playing with the kids. Tony DeCopel will show us how a younger generation of dads is changing the definition of fatherhood. You go this way. All right, sweetie. Simon Isaacs yeah. is leading the charge to the playground. So how many days a week do you do this? Uh, not enough. Not enough? Not enough. And with his website, he wants to change how fathers approach parenting. The daddy's on the bus say, I love you. Millennials are now the largest group of new dads in the country, so he's got plenty of company. Ahead on Sunday morning, a portrait of the American dad. The anniversary of Custer's Last Stand will be marked in Montana a week from today. With Mo Rocca this morning, we get a head start. The Battle of the Little Bighorn was short. But it's long haunted the American psyche. Every time you look at it from a different perspective, it surprises you. It's still not over. We will be fighting the battle Little Bighorn as long as we are a nation. Custer's Last Stand, ahead on Sunday morning. Seth Doan has a summer song from China's star classical pianist, Long Long. Steve Hartman salutes some good sports. DeMarco Morgan tells us about yesterday's hung jury in the Bill Cosby case and more. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. We begin with two headline-grabbing legal cases this past week. Yesterday's hung jury in the Bill Cosby sex abuse trial and Friday's guilty verdict in the texting suicide case. DeMarco Morgan and Aaron Moriarty have been covering the cases. We begin with DeMarco Morgan. There would be no sense of closure at the end of the sensational sexual assault trial of Bill Cosby. The judge declared a mistrial after the jurors reported they were hopelessly deadlocked on their sixth day of deliberations. Whenever you have a case like this, um, uh, where it's a, in a sense, a he said, she said situation, they're the only two witnesses there. University of Pennsylvania criminal law professor David Rudofsky. Uh, she gives a very credible story. Um, uh, through cross-examination, though, uh, the defense is able to show that she did certain things that might be inconsistent with what she said on the witness stand. Uh, those are the things that sometimes give jurors uh, significant pause. Jurors were unable to reach a unanimous vote in the case in which accuser Andrea Constan, a former Temple University employee, claimed Cosby, once known as America's TV dad, drugged and sexually assaulted her at his home in 2004. 
It's an old case. Um, uh, many years ago, uh, raises questions about why there was a delay in the prosecution. Uh, and fundamentally, I think what the defense was able to do was to call into question Ms. Constant's contact uh, with, with uh, Mr. Cosby uh, after the alleged sexual assault. Uh, why would you continue to have contacts uh, with a person who assaulted you? This is about Andrea Constant and inconsistencies in her story. Cosby spokesman, Andrew Wyatt. Mr. Cosby, power is back. It's back. It has been restored. District Attorney Kevin Steele immediately announced he'll try Cosby again. She's entitled to a verdict in this case, and the citizens of Montgomery County, um, where this crime occurred, are entitled uh, to a verdict. Reassuring news to Victoria Valentino, one of some 60 women accusing Cosby of sexual offenses. Justice for Andrea would have been justice for all of us. I will keep speaking out until I have no breath. But in the end, Professor Rudofsky says there will be little reprieve for Bill Cosby. He's now got to face another trial. Uh, he's an elderly guy. He's not in good health. Um, you know, his reputation, at least from my perspective, has already been seriously, seriously damaged. Uh, the fact that so many women uh, complained about him have, for a lot of people, put it in their minds that he probably did something wrong. Uh, was it criminal wrong? Uh, was it just immoral? Uh, you know, uh, it divides people. But he's now got to face perhaps the rest of his life in prison. Uh, that's a difficult situation, uh, but that's where we are at this point. This is Aaron Moriarty. This past week, 20-year-old Michelle Carter was convicted in a Massachusetts courtroom not so much for what she did, but for what she said. This court, having reviewed the evidence and applied the law thereto, now finds you guilty. Carter and her attorneys looked shocked as Judge Lawrence Monez found her guilty of involuntary manslaughter in the death of her friend, Conrad Roy. He died in a Kmart parking lot nearly three years ago from carbon monoxide poisoning. The judge found that a barrage of text messages and phone calls from Carter pushed 18-year-old Roy to take his own life, even though she was miles away at the time. So I guess you aren't going to do it then. All that for nothing. I'm just confused like you were so ready and determined. I'm gonna eventually. You're just making it harder on yourself by pushing it off. You just have to do it. But it was actually this text from Carter to a friend, Sam Boardman, sent two months after Roy's death that sealed her fate. Sam, his death is my fault. Like, honestly, I could have stopped him. I was on the phone with him, and he got out of the car because it was working, and he got scared, and I told him to get back in. The judge focused in particular on those last three words, get back in. This court finds that instructing Mr. Roy to get back in the truck constituted wanton and reckless conduct by Ms. Carter, creating a situation where there is a high degree of likelihood that substantial harm would result to Mr. Roy. She did not issue a simple additional instruction, get out of the truck. The defense will likely appeal. Carter's attorneys had argued that Roy, with a history of suicide attempts, 
would have taken his life anyway. He even recorded conversations of his struggles. I've created a monster out of myself the past few years because of my depression. Racing thoughts, suicidal thoughts. Prosecutor Katie Rayburn. Although we are very pleased with the verdict, in reality, there are no winners here today. Conrad, an 18-year-old boy, is dead, and the young woman, a young woman is now convicted of causing his death. The Massachusetts ACLU has already criticized the verdict as a violation of the defendant's right to free speech. Tell that to Conrad Roy's mother, Lynn, whose life has been forever changed by three little words. I don't understand why you would want someone that was so beautiful inside and out, that had so much, that was such a kind person, to die. Your reaction to this bombshell report and the... Next, America's Great Divide. The media hate America. Getting greater? The Great Divide in America's political life is a topic we have explored before. And if current events are any indication, it's a topic we'll be returning to again and again. Our cover story is reported by senior contributor Ted Koppel. A couple of months back, Stephen Colbert was checking out the makeup of his studio audience. Left-handers, left-handers, blondes, brunettes, Trump voters, good for you. It was actually kind of a sweet moment. Don't you change. Because the Ed Sullivan Theater in the heart of Manhattan is definitely not Trump country. And this single Trump supporter... Don't we love this guy? ...was being treated like some sort of endangered species. Thank you for your service. <laughs> it was a rare, tiny moment of tolerance in what has become an increasingly intolerant media landscape. Members of Congress under attack. In the immediate wake of last week's shooting, there was a brief surge of hands across the aisle. An attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. To my colleagues, you're going to hear me say something you've never heard me say before. I identify myself with the remarks of the speaker. But the shooter's immediate identification as a Trump hater... He repeatedly took to Facebook to share anti-Trump rhetoric. Stoked passions on the right... This was attempted partisan mass murder is what it was, Sean. Can you and the far right. Civil war. You saw a terror attack coordinated not by ISIS, but by CNN, MSNBC, the Democratic Party. Meanwhile, the rest of the media spectrum discovered new fuel for charges that the president has engaged in obstruction of justice. Whether the president himself attempted to obstruct justice. Your reaction to this bombshell report and the... If what you're hearing and reading and watching runs the gamut of what's referred to these days as the mainstream media, center-right to partisan left. ...scandal around the president. Then Professor Yochai Benkler at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society has concluded that all of you are consuming pretty much the same material. 
we did, just did a, a study on, on coverage of Trump and Russia in May of 2017. If you look and compare the words that are typical of places like the Wall Street Journal or Fortune or what we would normally think of as uh, center-right, um, sites that are the three networks, the Times, the Post, all the way to Huffington Post and Daily Kos and things that are more partisan left, they all use very similar words. There are now formal calls to impeach the president. In the last 24 hours, we keep hearing that I word a lot. They all focus on Trump and Russia in very similar terms of what the complication is. Does it raise a question of impeachment? Doesn't it? Is it enough for obstruction or not? Three words, obstruction of justice. Jeffrey Tubin is a left-wing kook, which is why he's qualified to be a legal analyst over at CNN. When you look at the right, you see much less coverage, first of all. And second, you see a completely different version of this is about a deep state effort to bring down Trump. Now, for weeks, we've been warning you about the deep state Obama holdover government bureaucrats who are hell-bent on destroying this president, President Trump. I know the entire Senate will join. Let's state the obvious. The Republicans control the Senate. The Republicans control the House. Donald Trump has been our president just five months. Talk of impeachment is probably premature and certainly plays right into the hands of the president's most ardent supporters. I marvel at the ability to drive these people crazy. They think they're driving Trump's crazy, and they may be, but I'm telling you, they're, they're losing it too. They're literally out of their minds now. You see the battle between Donald Trump and the media, which is very volatile and it's back and forth, it's every day. That sort of really began in earnest in November of 1969. The great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. When Nixon, after he gave his famous great silent majority speech, was attacked by the networks immediately. That's Pat Buchanan, whose new book, Nixon's White House Wars, draws on his own experience as an advisor to President Nixon and as the author of what would become a highly controversial speech that he wrote for Vice President Spiro Agnew, hitting back at the TV networks. Now, my friends, we'd never trust such power as I've described over public opinion in the hands of an elected government. It's time we questioned it in the hands of a small and unelected elite. Sound familiar? It was a first draft of what, 47 years later, would become a full-throated attack. Edited fake news. Now he's admitting that the New York Times is fake news. The fake news media has George Soros. They have Jeff Bezos. They have Carlos Slim. When Buchanan ran for president himself in 1992 and 96, he crafted several campaign themes that Donald Trump adopted almost word for word. Friends, there is nothing wrong with putting America first. America first will be the major and overriding theme of my administration. Each year, millions of illegal immigrants pour across our southern borders into the United States. Most come without job skills. Crime explodes. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And of course, the wall. And if I can get a victory in California, You'll see this fence all the way across the Gulf, exactly where I want it. 
I would build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me. Thank you. I love you. Thank you. Then and now, these were themes designed to peel white working-class Americans away from the Democratic Party, and it worked. Only the divisions now, says Buchanan, are far deeper than they were 20 years ago. And so everyone turns, basically, to create their own newspaper and their own network, and that's what they read. And uh, the core of it, Ted, is that uh, the country's divided as it's never been before in my lifetime. At both ends of the political spectrum... I'm Keith Olbermann, and this is The Resistance. There is a whiff of self-righteous high drama. Donald Trump, our national embarrassment, our international disgrace. The media hate America. They're every bit as evil as Donald Trump said. The media hate America. The media are fake news. Uh, The scientists are wrong on climate change. Every system we have for saying there's a world out there that's real, it's not all partisan politics, is being criticized by this administration, is being criticized by the propaganda network that supports it. A network, says Professor Benkler, largely inspired by Breitbart, until a few years ago, an obscure right-wing website which, under the leadership of Steve Bannon, accumulated enormous national political influence. And yes, it's that Steve Bannon, President Trump's chief strategist. Breitbart, connected to Fox News, amplifying AM radio, creates an alternative narrative. So they'll have a series of stories basically saying deep state leaks for the first time this, that, or the other. This will then be linked to on other websites like Daily Caller. It will be amped up on conspiracy sites like Infowars. It will be generated on TV and Fox News. And all of this network of propaganda sites is directly then tied to someone who's sitting inside the White House. And if I tell those folks who believe all the things you've just enumerated, there is this study conducted by a professor at Harvard University. Now, he's an honest academician. You think they're going to pay the slightest bit of attention to your study? No. You think Trump is going to be impeached? I, you know, I don't think, no, I do not know how we can sustain this level of intensity and hostility that we've had for four and a half months, for 44 more months. I don't know how it's going to end, but my guess is badly. Buchanan and I spoke before last Wednesday's shooting. Do you think there will be violence? I raised the issue of possible violence in the context of an impeachment. Would it come to violence? I don't know. I I wouldn't predict that. But I do think that this country would be even further and irrevocably divided over this issue, and they would not forget it for a long, long time because they would believe what, Ted? They would believe that this establishment was out to get Trump from the first day and it wanted to take him down, and I think they would be right. Which brings us back to where we began. Stephen Colbert, sitting atop the late-night ratings these days by being consistently and often outrageously anti-Trump. I have something to say here. Donald Trump, if you're watching, first of all, you're a bad president, please resign. Second of all... The cheering went on and on and on. 
Next stop, Atlantic City. And now a page from our Sunday Morning Almanac, June 18, 1898. 119 years ago today, the day Atlantic City, New Jersey, opened its famous Steel Pier, with Annie Oakley in person as the headliner. Loaded with amusements and attractions, the Steel Pier was the centerpiece of the jam-packed beach scene that Thomas Edison captured on film in 1901. The pier featured diving horses, bears on bicycles, tiny cars that spun in midair, and acrobats galore. It's the great annual bathing beauty contest at Atlantic City. The pier hosted some of the very early Miss America pageants as well. It also was the stage for some of the biggest entertainers of the day. The Three Stooges ogled a bathing beauty in this color short of dubious political correctness in 1938. In 1958, Ricky Nelson performed for a Steel Pier record crowd of 44,000 plus. Eventually, however, changing times and vacation habits caught up with Atlantic City's Steel Pier. It closed in 1978. And then in 1982, the main building on Atlantic City's steel pier was destroyed in a suspicious fire that raged for more than six hours. There were no serious injuries, but a fire official said that ends the career of the steel pier. Not quite, as it turns out. The steel pier has been rebuilt with new rides and amusements. Just an echo of the original pier's claim to be the showplace of the nation. <laughs> Next, hey, silly. is that dad at the playground? On the beach? Is there a beach up there? Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Daddy's home and more involved with his kids than ever. Tony DeCopel takes a Father's Day look at a new generation of devoted dads. And we'll go to the slides and the swing. And Don't let the sport coat fool you. How silly. Simon Isaacs is ready. No, do not <laughs> kiss the pole. For the playground. Chicken taco? That's his two-year-old daughter, Kaya, selling imaginary tacos. Oh, here's my taco, thank you. Six, seven, what's next, eight? And while Simon's afternoon with her may not look like much, certainly no more than what many moms do every day, the 36-year-old entrepreneur sees it as a small act of revolution. When you talk about a social movement, are we witnessing it right here, two guys on a weekday in a playground? You know, in itself, it's not a revolutionary act, but the impact of all of it is revolutionary together, meaning, you know, guys involved in their kids' lives uh, in a really deep way. You need help? Let's go. You know, who can only finish half sentences uh, because that's, that's what parenting is about. Isaac's other baby is a website. He's co-founder of Fatherly, a compendium of practical parenting advice aimed at America's biggest group of new dads, millennials. 
the truth is 80% of millennial dads, 80% of dads that were born after 1980 claim that they're the primary grocery shopper, which sort of blows people's mind when, when it comes to thinking about sort of what is really happening around the household. Isaac says today's dads are different. Nearly two-thirds of households with kids have two working spouses. And as women have pushed into the workforce, dads have pushed under the playground. Or at least they've tried to. The number one source of stress, it's basically understanding that we have to work no matter what. I would love to spend more time with him, and sometimes I can't. A Boston College study out this week found most dads believe child care should be evenly divided. But only about a third actually get there. Even Simon Isaac's wife, Liza, can relate. Any partnership is always a balance between sometimes it's 50-50, sometimes it's 20-80, sometimes it's 80-20. I think the intention to strive for 50-50 is a beautiful one, and I think there is, like life, no perfect uh, equation. Trying to find that perfect equation generally means a lot more work at home for dads. And advertisers have noticed, hailing dads as everyday heroes. It's a portrayal of dad that's a little different from what we're used to. Think Homer Simpson, Al Bundy, I'm home. Archie Bunker. If it's too hot in the kitchen, stay away from the cook. <laughs> For a long time, father didn't know best. Daddy-o, daddy-o, sure good looking daddy-o. But real dads have come a very long way since 1966 when President Lyndon Johnson set aside the third Sunday in June for Father's Day, emphasizing dad's strength and stability. Father would come home, read the newspaper, not pay much attention to the kids, really, and still be considered a good father because he was making the family financially stable. Psychologist Ray Levy grew up in the 1950s when dads were expected to be breadwinners and disciplinarians, but not much else. Nobody actually believed that fathers could be warm and soft. That, that was an unusual father. We know now kids that get that time and attention from their fathers do better in school, on the job, and in their own relationships. That's according to research that barely existed a generation ago. That's one of the reasons that we speak of fathers as having been the forgotten parent. Nobody did much research on fathers. It was all on mothers reading and talking and singing to them. That's why Levy founded the Fatherhood Project out of Harvard's Mass General Hospital. One current study, postpartum depression in men. The daddies on the bus say, I love you, I love you, I love you. Its Dad's Matter program is part play date and part workshop for men struggling with the new equation of fatherhood. Fathers like high school teacher Garcia Dalzon. You know, growing up, you know, in my household, like, you know, my, my dad giving me a hug and then saying I love you, those things kind of really didn't happen that often. And though they still trail moms, fathers have nearly tripled the time they spend with their kids. David Anchudia works nights and then takes care of his daughter during the day. 
there are some days where I'm just like I'm beat and we're yeah. we're there playing and we'll be playing on the floor and then next thing I know she's like Dada wake up and I'm like oh whoa, whoa, what happened that you doesn't know? happen to any of us <laughs> yeah. you know? just so you know as an exercise the guys try to imagine what their children will say about them in 20 years in 20 years uh, I hope she says that I was there for her like no matter how busy I got no matter how tired I was that you know I made time for her if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Of course, 20 years is a long time. So if you're lucky enough to have your dad around, whatever his age, now might be the moment to make some time for him. Oh, yeah. Nice, Herbert. Awesome. Still to come. Long, long. The key to his success. And later, this is where it all began. Even if it ain't all it seems, I got a pocket full of trees, baby. I'm That's Long Long playing piano accompaniment to Andrew Day on the song Empire State of Mind. Long Long has a summer song to share with us and a Father's Day story all his own. Seth Doan paid him a visit. Thirty-five-year-old, world-renowned Chinese pianist Long Long wants to change the whole concept of classical piano. He's brought his emotional, dramatic style to audiences across the globe. From New York's Lincoln Center to this night on a very special stage, his hometown of Shenyang, China. So tonight we will uh, we will start with Cuban uh, dance, and then and then we will have this beautiful night music, and then we will have Turkish march. Totally different. Yeah, and then we have a super mass. You see. Da -da 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 -da. If he's a celebrity elsewhere, he's a superstar in Shenyang, the city of 8 million in China's northeast, where we met him at a CD signing ahead of the performance. How is it to be home? It feels really warm. You know, it's just, I left my hometown when I was nine, so I always missing my home. A promising young pianist, his parents moved him to Beijing as a child so he could work with the best teacher they could afford. He lived with his father in a $20 a month apartment, while his mother, a telephone operator, sent what money she could to support them. It was a rough start. The first year is very, very difficult, and I, I got fired by the piano teacher. She said, I'm not no teaching talent. you? No talent. No talent. <laughs> a devastated Long Long stopped practicing, which sent his father into a fit of rage. My father totally went nuts because he's like, you know, you just got fired and you're still not serious about your playing, your, your life, and you should kill yourself. Your dad said you should kill yourself. Yeah. Was he serious? Yeah, I think he, he was serious. When we met his dad just before the Shenyang performance, we were asked not to discuss the suicide demands. Looking back, do you think, uh, oh, I, I might have pushed my son uh, too much? I think I inspired him to love piano, he said. We became partners in our career. Today, father and son are often side by side. 
And Long Long says he almost understands. During the Cultural Revolution, which is, you know, my parents' generation, they didn't have a chance, you know, to do what they like to do. In Communist Party founder Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution, Chinese intellectuals and artists were sent to villages to work on farms. Jobs were assigned and dreams dashed. So his parents poured their dreams into him, spending half a year's salary to buy Long Long a piano. As a kid, he remembered being inspired by this 1986 performance by Russian Vladimir Horowitz, which he watched on TV. It was broadcast in America live on Sunday morning. There were also the far more childlike sources of inspiration. Borrowing some of Tom and Jerry's flair for the dramatic, Long Long went on to study at Philadelphia's prestigious Curtis Music Academy surprising peers with his love for Beethoven. And they were, ugh, <laughs> that's like my great-grandmother favorite. That guy's dead, right? I said, yeah, 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 but so, so you know, from the very beginning, I, I thought, you know, one day I need to change this, you know, this image. <laughs> so when he got the chance to play along with heavy metal group Metallica at the 2014 Grammys, he took it. You like the showmanship aspect of, of this. You yeah. like the performance. Absolutely, because I think that uh, sometimes, you know, people think about classical musicians. They think we are professors. Nothing against professors, of course. In fact, inspiring the next generation is one of Long Long's focuses these days. How many kids in China are, are trying to learn the piano? We have... 50 million kids learning piano. Five zero? Yeah. 50 million kids? Yeah. So you were a role model to an awful lot of kids in this country. Yeah, I sometimes I felt that I'm, uh, I'm in charge of a huge kindergarten. <laughs> At that performance in Shenyang, 100 of them, ages 6 to 10, played by his side, though perhaps not with the same effortless appearance. Long Long says in kids he recognizes the same hopes and dreams his father saw in him. It happened this past week, the sad return home in a coma of 22-year-old American student Otto Warmbier. Arrested in North Korea last year for allegedly stealing a poster, the tearful warm beer was tried and sentenced to 15 years of hard labor. I have made the worst mistake of my life. After months of futile diplomatic appeals, North Korea suddenly let him go, blaming the coma on botulism and a sleeping pill. Dr. Daniel Cantor of the University of Cincinnati Medical Center says there's no sign of botulism, but a great deal of brain damage. Wearing the same jacket his son wore at his trial, his father, Fred Warmbier, spoke out. There is no excuse for any civilized nation to have kept his condition secret and denied him top-notch medical care for so long. The fact that he was taken and treated this way is horrible, and it's 
tough to process, but we're tremendously proud of him. Next, a hard-earned lesson. Can our political leaders ever take a break from bitter partisanship and simply play ball? If they take the lead of the young role models Steve Hartman admires, they just might. This past week, some people tried to turn the baseball shooting into a political football, blaming one party or the other for the violence. Normally, you'd expect Congress to join in the mudslinging, but they threw us a curveball at Thursday's game. The way they greeted each other, the way they prayed together at second base. Tragedy can have that effect on people. But you know, baseball helps too. It's hard not to be a good sport when you're playing America's pastime. In fact, I would argue that everything Congress needs to know to fix our political acrimony, they already learned in Little League. In Little League, they teach you that losers don't whine, winners don't gloat. And you don't question a call based on the umpire's heritage. These things are no-brainers to young minds. But for some reason, we forget those life lessons in our later innings. So why bother teaching kids good sportsmanship if we're just going to cast it aside as adults? And why celebrate that baseball game if the mutual respect we witnessed was a mirage that will just fade as soon as the infield dust settles? That's my fear. That Monday we'll be right back where we were. Unless we try something new. Or in this case, something old. The post-game handshake is the bedrock of Little League. Kids do it after every game all the way through college. It stops in the pros, but for no good reason. So here's my idea. After every session of Congress, after every State of the Union, both parties should line up, as they did Thursday night, just to say, good job, or thanks for being here. You don't have to change your positions. You don't even have to compromise. All you have to do is reach across the aisle with an open hand and show some civility. We like what we saw last week. We'd like to see more. So Congress, next time the gavel lands, please consider walking over to thank your so-called adversaries for serving the country you also love. Just because you're in the big leagues doesn't mean you can't act like a little leaguer. Next, the music that launched the summer of love. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Slow down, you move too fast. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. That's Simon and Garfunkel helping to launch the Summer of Love at the Monterey Pop Festival back in 1967. Its vibe is still being felt half a century later. Anthony Mason takes us to Monterey then and now. At the fairgrounds in Monterey, California this weekend, just down the coast from San Francisco, the Monterey International Pop Festival is celebrating its rock ancestor the festival that gave birth to rock festivals. If you're going to San Francisco. 
50 years ago this weekend, the first Monterey pop, with its slogan of music, love, and flowers, rang the opening bell for the summer of love. Monterey would be the breakout moment for Jimi Hendrix, playing his first American show with the experience. For Janis Joplin, then almost unknown, outside San Francisco. And for Otis Redding, who'd never played for a white audience. Well, this is John Phillips of the Mamas and Papas. The festival was organized by John Phillips, leader of the Mamas and the Papas, and his manager and producer, Lou Adler. Did you sell out every day? Oh, yeah. Everything was full, and then there were people standing along the fences. The top ticket, $6.50. Almost all the acts played for charity. You put this together in how long? Six and a half weeks. Six and a half weeks. No rules, no regulations. <laughs> it was a madhouse at the Monterey Pop Festival offices. A total madhouse. Hey, Michelle. Take this till Dionne Warwick comes on with. Michelle Phillips, John's wife, is the last surviving member of the Mamas and the Papas. All the leaves are brown, leaves are brown. And the sky is gray. And the sky is gray. The group headlined a lineup of more than 30 artists. I'm dappled and drowsy and ready to sleep like the morning time. From the sweet folk rock of Simon and Garfunkel. Life, I love you. All is groovy. To the classical sitar music of Ravi Shankar. Why do you think everybody wanted to come? Well, John and Lou did a very, very smart thing. They created a board of governors. The board included their friends, Paul McCartney, Brian Wilson, and Smokey Robinson. The board of directors is interesting. Never had a meeting. <laughs> we were all asked to submit somebody that we thought should be at the festival. Who did you submit? Otis Redding. Good choice. My good. And Paul McCartney suggested this kid, uh, Jimi Hendrix. We had no idea who he was. You move it out. The Jimi Hendrix experience had just started to make a name for themselves in England, where they played on the same bill with another band recommended by the board, The Who. The story is that there was sort of a battle between The Who and True Hendrix. Story. Yeah, there was a battle because they knew each other from England and yeah. they knew each other's act. So no one wanted to follow the other because it looked like they would be copying them. So a coin was flipped to determine who'd go first. And the who won. And Hendrix jumped up on the table and looked down at Pete Townsend, Townsend yeah. and said, you little I think he called him, I'm going to do something to burn you. 
The Who destroyed their instruments on stage. But Hendrick's performance was literally incendiary. Did you see the Hendrix performance too? I did, and I didn't like him. I didn't know why anybody would want to destroy their acts. It took me a while to understand the theater that rock and roll was becoming. One of the faces you see in Penny Baker's film is a girl in complete shock. She could be watching a horror film. D.A. Pennybaker directed a team of filmmakers who recorded Monterey Pop for what was originally supposed to be a TV special for ABC. Did you need a special kind of camera for this? We made one. We made our own cameras. We built them ourselves. They were the first portable sound-synced cameras. But when the head of ABC saw the footage, he balked. So we showed him Hendrix fornicating with his amp. He said, take the film, take the money, get out of my office, basically. <laughs> and that's how it ended up being a film. Penny Baker's restored documentary has just been re-released. There were some artists who didn't want to be filmed. Janice didn't. Well, she did, but her, her agent at the time didn't. Janice Joplin's initial set with her band, Big Brother and the Holding Company, was a smash. But her agent wouldn't allow it to be recorded. But when she saw the reaction that she got from the, the audience, she went back to John and Lou and she said, I want, a, I want a, one more chance. Let me, let me do another set. So she went out again just so she could be filmed. Yeah. But she threw as much into that performance and maybe more than the first performance. like a ball and in a In the crowd was the head of Columbia Records. And this whirling dervish, this electrifying white soul singer, was so riveting. Clive Davis signed her immediately. I'm seeing this, and I said, my God, this is a musical revolution. It's not just a social revolution. After the peaceful celebration of music in Monterey, there was talk of a sequel. And they almost ran us off the peninsula. They did. They didn't want to do it again. No. There were threatening letters. Uh, you, you people are not coming back. Well. You know. It only took us 50 years to get that done. On the, radio, on the, the anniversary lineup includes Regina Spector. Leon Bridges. And Eric Burden, who was here 50 years ago with the animals and wrote a hit song about what happened that weekend in the summer of love. Next. I just want you to know how much I appreciate you. Jim Gaffigan, buy a hair. Father's Day has a personal 
and maybe a little peculiar meaning for our Jim Gaffigan. It's Father's Day and I am a father, but I would like to acknowledge the fact that I owe most of the credit for who I am today elsewhere. I would like to express this gratitude and appreciation in the form of a love letter. Dear my beard, not that beard, this beard. I just want you to know how much I appreciate you. I realize I don't often acknowledge all you do for me. Well, I never do. You are facial hair after all. But when you're not around beard, I really miss you. Everyone misses you. My kids have said, where's your beard? You look scary without it. Without a beard, my head looks like a marshmallow wearing a wig. Not only do you make me look less scary, you somehow make me look thin. I call you my fat shield. Like magic, you cover my double, all right, triple chin, and give my round, all right, blob-like face definition. You are also the only accessory a man could ever need. A simple change into a flannel shirt, and I'm an outdoorsy lumberjack. When I wear red, I'm a generous, jolly gift giver. With a top hat, I'm patriotic. Beard, you keep me warm in the winter. Remind me it's too hot outside during the summer. Heck, you even catch food for me when I eat sloppily, which is often. All right, all the time. Beard, you understand no sane man enjoys shaving. You understand our superstitions and our love of history. Some days you feel like my only friend. So, my beard, I would like to express my love and appreciation to you this Father's Day and say, I couldn't have done it without you. I love you, Jim. Ahead. Custer loved the thrill of anything. The last word on Custer's last stand. The 141st anniversary of Custer's last stand is next Sunday. It turns out there's more to the story of that epic battle, as Moraka now tells us. Every summer along the banks of Montana's Little Bighorn River, the strains of the 7th Cavalry's fight song are heard. As Colonel George Armstrong Custer leads a bold charge on an Indian encampment. Reenacting the battle that took place here on June 25th, 1876. The sky is raining arrows, gunfire, smoke, yelling, screaming, cursing. Ranger Steve Adelson describes a terrifying cauldron of fear and violence. Two moons of Cheyenne chief. We swirled around the soldiers like water around a stone. How long did the battle last? He said about as long as it takes for a hungry man to eat his dinner. In little more than an hour, Custer and more than 200 of his men were dead. The battle itself was short and decisive, its legacy anything but. And the man at the center, says historian Nathaniel Philbrick, is as fiercely debated as ever. Custer is a lightning rod. He's one of those guys at the time he was living. People either loved him, worshipped him, or despised him, thought he was a fool. 
I think he was always reckless, but I think he was lucky, and his luck ran out right here. So you think Custer just rushed in? Yeah, he thought we were going to leave, you know? But little did he know he was entering the biggest encampment in Indian country. Even though he captured more battle flags, more for Confederate prisoners than any other officer during the war, the single day of his life, the last day, is what he's remembered for. And how that day and Custer are remembered has changed over time. When I was a kid, he was the hero because I had seen they died with their boots on. Heroic betrayal. Then I think I was a freshman in high school and I saw a little big man. You go! The Custer is the deranged maniac, a caricature almost of a Vietnam era imperialist. As a youth, Custer didn't seem destined for greatness. He finished last in his class at West Point? Yes, and he knows how to play the, the game of how bad can I behave and not get kicked out. And so for him, he was playing that line. Who finished first in his class? <laughs> uh, I, exactly. There Who you cares? Go. But Custer's bravery in battle was unquestioned. A brigadier general for the Union Army at 23, he became a Civil War hero. And at Gettysburg, he has his horse shot from underneath him? Yeah, it was looking like the Confederates just might pull it off. The only person between them and that fate was Custer. And Custer and his Wolverines, the Michiganders, unleashed an incredible charge. Is he an adrenaline junkie? Custer loved the thrill of anything. And there was nothing more thrilling than being in battle. Except, perhaps, dressing up in black velvet uniforms adorned with gold braid. There are more pictures of Custer than any figure at that time. He's so vain, and he knows how to work the camera. I mean, this is the social media of its day. He know? would have been a monster on Instagram. Oh, can, oh and yes, Instagram, and, you know, he could have done pretty well on Twitter, too. But by 1876, the Custer luster had faded. A military victory out west could restore some of that shine. He's 36. He's towards the end of his career. He's been dabbling in the stock market, silver mines, losing his shirt. He's got hopes of a lecture tour if he can come back a hero. He's desperate. And the country, preparing to celebrate its centennial, was desperate too for Indian land, including the gold-rich Black Hills of the Dakota Territory, land sacred to the Lakota that the U.S. government had only years before granted them forever. The stakes were literally life and death for the Lakota. Their buffalo population upon which they depended had been decimated. The last remaining significant herd was in Montana, and that's why the Battle of Little Bighorn would be fought in that location. The story you're going to hear is the Indian version of the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Part of the battle took place on land owned today by brothers Jim and Henry Reelbird. We just swam along the river and then we would find bullets and shell casings. That's from the battle. Their family has staged the annual reenactment for 26 years now. How was the battle taught in school when you were growing up? Just mentioned briefly in the encyclopedia like that and that's all there was to it. What we do know is that Custer met his match in Chief Sitting Bull. 45 years old, too old to fight, but not to lead. He exhorts the warriors on. 
Brave up! Brave up! Strong hearts to the front, cowards to the rear. Hoka hey, it's a good day to die. On that late June morning, Custer was undaunted by reports that his men were outnumbered by the Indians. He's gone up against insurmountable odds oftentimes during the Civil War and come out victorious by being aggressive. And on top of the ridge, Custer. But the Indians didn't run, and they did fight. Eagle bone whistles shrieking across the battlefield in the dust and the smoke. It was apocalyptic chaos. George Armstrong Custer's mutilated body was recovered days later. According to, to native oral tradition, his ears had been pierced with awls so that he could hear better in the afterlife. The expression on his face? A smile, a, a, a triumphant smile. And that is just the, the mystery of Custer. The victory for the Indians was short-lived. Within two years, most were confined to reservations. This was a battle over land, without a doubt, land. Who would occupy it, how it would be used, and who would be allowed to traverse across it. At the Little Bighorn Battlefield National Monument, Custer's men are memorialized where they fell. The Indian warriors who lost their lives are remembered too on what is today known as Last Stand Hill. This place talks to you. You don't have to strain to hear it. And there's a mystical aura to it. It is a spiritual place. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.